Hello and welcome to Metaphorically Speaking with me, Delia Delore, the podcast where we dissect popular mottos, mantras and metaphors, finding how they translate to everyday life. And of course, each week we have a special guest who resonates with our chosen expression and sometimes they choose their metaphor themselves. Whether you're listening alone or gathered in a group, I'm sure you'll enjoy this week's episode as we're looking at the Polish proverb, Eagles fly alone, but sheep flock together. Our guest this week is author Ray Studevant. We'll talk about his latest book, Black Sheep. At a time when we are all re-examining the complex issues of race, disenfranchisement and belonging, our guest Ray Studevant's compelling true story shows us what is possible when we trust our hearts and follow the path of love. But before we hear from Ray, let's take a closer look at the proverb, Eagles fly alone, but sheep flock together. Unlike previous metaphors and proverbs that we have on today's show, this week's metaphor's origin is slightly unknown. All we know is that it's a Polish proverb. For any of you wondering what a proverb is, a proverb is a short, well-known saying stating a general truth or piece of advice. Poland has quite a few interesting proverbs about animals, including better a sparrow in hand than a pigeon on the roof, to divide the skin while it's still on the bear, once among the crows, core as they do. Don't worry if they've left you scratching your head, it can take a while for the wisdom to sink in. Though fans of the 70s detective series Banachek will know that some old Polish proverbs make no sense at all. There's an old Polish proverb that says, just because a dress is red satin doesn't mean it comes off easily. There's an old Polish proverb that says, even a thousand zloty note can't tap dance. There's an old Polish proverb that says, no matter how warm the smile on the face of the sun, the cat still has her kittens under the porch. Let's try to make sense of our proverb. What do we know about eagles and sheep? And which is it better to be? I came across another saying concerning eagles and their flying habits. Eagles fly alone, but not because they are proud, but because they are not afraid of soaring over the clouds. This is a bit more obvious in its meaning, telling us that eagles are brave, potentially proud, and again, enjoying flying alone. After some research on scientific animal-based websites, I discovered that eagles are exceptionally strong. In fact, some can use their talons to lift prey larger than themselves, including sheep. Can you believe that? These birds of prey are top of the food chain, and as we know, it can get lonely at the top. But although they may fly alone, eagles are known to mate for life, and both males and females build the nest together. So at the moment, it's sounding pretty good to be an eagle, and maybe we should all fly alone. But let's take a look at the humble sheep. As we know, they flock together, have been bred to provide wool for our jumpers and socks, and it's common to see them as a bit stupid. However, sheep are reported to have very impressive cognitive ability, and just like humans, form deep and lasting bonds with each other. They will stick up for one another in fights and grieve when they lose a friend. 
Sheep are actually very complex and experience all of the same emotions that we do, including fear, joy, boredom, anger, and happiness, to name a few. I had a friend in St. Lucia who had a goat as his best friend. In fact, the goat lived with him and had his own bedroom. I thought it was weird. Those people in St. Lucia, they will know who I'm talking about. Uh, but now I understand a little bit better now. <laughs> I'll be honest, I'm struggling to decide which animal I'd rather be compared to. Perhaps instead we should focus on the qualities mentioned in our proverb, flying alone or flocking together. But before we delve deeper into this anthropomorphic journey of identity, let's hear from our extremely interesting guest who has faced a far more difficult identity. The odds were stacked against race student from day one. Born to a white heroin-addicted mother and a black, violently alcoholic father, his childhood in Washington, D.C. was a chaotic mix of substance abuse, death and neglect. After being abandoned by both parents at the age of five, he was adopted by his aunt Lamel Studevant in an all-black neighborhood. The only issue was Ray didn't look black and has had to face an identity struggle for much of his life. Ray, tell us about your memoir, Black Sheep, A Blue-Eyed Negro Speaks of Abandonment, Belonging, Racism and Redemption, and why is it an important read? It's truly a love story between a Southern Black woman who experienced racism in the South, uh, 30s and 40s, and ironically, her grandmother was a slave, and she had told her that, you know, the Lord works in mysterious ways because she had grown to really despise white people with blue eyes. So fast forwarding later, she's in a situation where she has to decide, am I going to adopt this child who has no parents, who looks and represents everything I despised in my childhood? You see, now the love story comes in in the sense that she had dealt with racism from white people, but there he was in the blackest city in America. And her not only adopting a child that's a mixed race, but she has to remind him, <laughs> your birth certificate says you, you're a Negro. And of course, she wanted me never to think that I could play the joker in the decks, as she would say, the white card. It was always, she wanted to always remind me of that, but she also took on that challenge when her husband died because she could have easily taken me back to a foster home, but she took on that challenge when I was a very small child. And it's a journey for both of them through, through life. And um, it was quite interesting, and, yeah. So what inspired you to write this book? I never thought I got closure for her. I never thought she got her due, you know? And I think that thinking back, when your husband, your twin brother and father die in a 90 day span, and you got this blue eyed rascal sitting right there, you see? And I never got to thank her the way I really wanted to. And it was when I gave her speech at her funeral, and I start telling these stories that we shared and the amazing stories, and it dawned on me, this woman was absolutely amazing. She was a librarian for nearly 40 years. Her thinking was, she made me read all the classics. I was actually in Ebony Magazine at 10 years old because I read 150 books one summer. She made me read you know, all the classics. I read Catcher in the Rye, The Pearl, Uncle Tom's, all these books. But her thinking was, those are great books, but write your own. And this Sunday, my sister is actually going to take a copy of the book to her grave because that's what I wrote in the book that she would do. So I felt like it's sort of redemption and closure for me. That's 
what it meant to me to write that book, for sure. Oh, that's amazing. You know, as you said, uh, Pearl, that brought me back to school days where they thought that was such an important book to read by John Steinbeck, right? That's right. Uh, yeah, and uh, so that gave me a touch of the person your grandmother was. But can you tell us then, what was the most difficult period that you wrote about in your book? Can you read it to us and then tell us why it was difficult to write? Okay, it was, now, going back, like I said, she had experienced a lot of racism from white people, but it was even more difficult for her because in DC, you had a lot of affluent black people, AKA sorority, light-skinned black people. She was brown-skinned, right? So I'm gonna read it, Jesse Jackson's son, when I was in high school. So uh, his parents picked me up. They invite me to what's called DC, the Gold Coast. It's where all the affluent black people live. So we go to dinner. Now, we were from the other side of the tracks. We were impoverished, but we were living on that side of the side, lower middle class, what have you. So I'm going to read a scene from there because this was really hard for me because I knew how embarrassed she was. So she comes in. And so one of the guests says, Solomel, where did you go to school and pledge? I suppose you didn't pledge, AKA being a bit brown and all. Nowadays, pink and green allows all shades to pledge. I mean, on both sides of the brown paper bag. Fearing that mama would let these high yellow Negroes have a piece of her mind, I spoke up for her. I was already jealous of them, but now I was angry. So I put my arm around mama, proceeded to do what she had done for me so many times. I came to her rescue. I said, listen, I know all you good Negroes are trying to figure out what this is all about, but let me tell you so you can relax. This woman, my mother is from a place called Crystal Springs, Mississippi. My real mother was a drug addict and my father, a black man with a complexion rather common in this home, was an alcoholic and never cared much for me. This woman rescued me from an orphanage. Soon after her husband died, she was left with a decision. Take me back to a foster home, an orphanage, or try to find one of my parents. She decided that even though I was not her blood nephew, that she would adopt me as her own. She's the most amazing woman in this room. And I don't mean to minimize certainly the impressive accomplishments of any other woman here, but I seriously doubt it. Any of you highfalutin colored folks can top that. Andrew. Did I use that word correctly, highfalutin? He says, I think so. Mama smiled. She said, thank you, son. Now let's go. That was hard for me because they looked down at her and I knew she was embarrassed because even though she was a librarian, she was articulate, but not on the level or to the capacity that they were. I know how embarrassed she was. And, and one of the reasons, another reason why I wrote the book, because I wanted to give Southern women, especially Black women, a voice because she felt, especially being from Mississippi, that most people perceive that, you know, uneducated, backwoods, country dumb Negroes. And she was far from that. And that was another thing that motivated me to write the book because I wanted to be her voice. And, um, and I thought she never really got her due. So that scene was very difficult for me. Mm -hmm. Well, just listening to it was difficult for me because you know, being uh, born in Britain and mm -hmm. then spending a lot of time in the US, it's made me understand much more what it was like to be a black American, uh, especially in those days. And when you oh, were yeah. reading from your book, I could, I could see it. I could 
I can understand it better. And mm -hmm. I just saw it visually like a film. Mm -hmm. I could see it as a, a setting in a film uh, where, yeah. you know, we talk about race, we talk about pride, we talk about acknowledgement and gratitude. And you've put all those things in that one passage. But when you read it now, how does it make you feel? Do you feel that you have given it the justice? Do you feel like you want to uh, cry or have pride or how does it make you feel? It's her memoir and it makes me feel proud in the sense that I felt like I gave her justice. I represented her through and through. I felt that uh, there were some things in the book that she would not like, some cute things like her crush on Paul Newman. <laughs> like, you know, as a Southern black woman, she's not, if she was here today, she's like, boy, I know you did not tell them people. She would always tell me, you won't tell nobody. I like, so I used to catch her watching Magnum P.I., uh, you know, Tom Selleck. And then uh, we went to the movies, just her and I one night, and we go see Cannonball Run. And I said, you don't have any interest in fast cars, but it was Burt Reynolds. So she had a secret thing, and we found our running joke. So I, I brought out some things that I know because we watched Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Yes. <laughs> you know, she looked at she looked at Paul Newman and she said, My goodness, that's a good looking white man. And you better not tell anybody. <laughs> She's got a great point there. <laughs> she has a fantastic point there. But now that the book yeah. has been published, mm -hmm. what's the feedback you've received so far? Are you getting back what you thought you were going to get from it? Uh yeah, it's got far more notoriety than I expected, uh, I, but I think because racism and racial issues in America, obviously right now is such a polarizing uh, subject. I mean, it's just, it's divided the country. It's just been so, I've gotten a lot of positive feedback. I mean, I'm waiting for a number of the reviews from some of the heavy hitters to see what they think, but there's gonna be people who love it, people who can't relate, some people who don't like it. It's, but the point was I can sleep at night because I know mama would be proud. You know, she said, boy, you, you did me proud. And for that, I'm certainly grateful that, uh, I mean, just to be on your show, I mean, just you thinking enough to say, I got to bring this guy on, you know? And so I'm grateful to you. And of course, I love to sit and just tell stories about, I mean, I, I sit all day. <laughs> <laughs> well, I wish I could spend the whole of my time talking about the book because it's just so interesting. Mm -hmm. And I'm, I'm seeing and understanding the personalities more than I'm talking to you now. But I need to ask you, how does the metaphor Eagles fly alone, but sheep flock together, reflect your work ethic and your personality. Well, it's interesting about the eagles. I, I just read something recently, and they set their nest way up away from everything on cliff sides, right? And they fly alone, and it's awful quiet. It's awful lonely up there. Because in this world, basically, we're trying to get in where we fit in, and most of us go along to get along and afraid to fly like eagles. And I think that in my life, when your birth certificate says black and you're as white as they come, it's been very difficult. And you do fly alone like an eagle sometimes. But like my mother forced me to do, you shoot high. And I shot high and that's how I was able to retire where I'm at. You know, I'm well, 54 now, but three years ago. And I think as far as sheep, as far as my mother, Alexander the Great once said that he wasn't afraid of an army of lions led by sheep, but he was more afraid of an army of sheep led by a lion. And my mother was a lion and we were her sheep. And she led us right out of the ghetto, right off into prosperous lives. 
And so I think that, you know, as a sheep in that regard, I wouldn't mind because I had a heck, you know, she was the lion queen for sure. <laughs> mm-hmm. Can you remember at what age you felt that you were different, that the color of your skin made you different? You know it at five, four, five, and six, but I think when I was really at hit home was when I saw Roots. Now, Alex Haley did that. Now, if you look on the front of the book, his widow wrote the full afterward to my book. That's his widow, my Haley, who wrote that. But when they had the scenes in Roots, my mother actually went up to the school and had to tell them, this is my son, because black kids were so angry about what was going on in this slave movie. And that's when I knew, wow, you hear about slavery, you know, we sang the, the black national anthem in school and everything, but it wasn't until Roots that I really knew that that divide was great. And to sum it up, I mean, I, I tried to learn the guitar, but it was hard because most of my fingers were broken, just fighting, just trying to survive. But I think about five or six, you kind of know, but it really hit home when I was like nine, when I saw Roots. And, and, and I knew life was going to be different. I had two imaginary friends. One was black and one was white. <laughs> and then you know you're crazy then as a child. So how did you get Alex Haley's widow to do the forward for you? My agent knew her and she said to her, I have an interesting book. I want you to just read and tell me what you think. And we had just had a couple chapters. She let her read it. She says, I, I'd love to write the four. It was a foreword, but we changed it to an afterword. He just wanted to get right into the book. But she offered to write it. I couldn't have been more happy to have her to do it. And but from what I understand, you know, she really helped Alex a lot, you know, in writing Roots. So I was just absolutely so excited to have her on board, for sure. That's very impressive. And it makes you feel that, wow, this must be a powerful story. If uh, she can mm-hmm. not only read it, but, you know, write about it. That's excellent. How important is it for parents to engage their children in their cultural history? I think it's if the motive is genuine and not anyone being better. Let me give an example. I had a black uncle. Uh, relative and family, and they always had a problem with white people listening to jazz music and rap music. And then I said, but I think it's good we learn all cultures. I said, because let me put it to you this way. You drive a German car with a Japanese stereo, you wear a Swiss watch, wearing an Italian suit, and you eat Mexican food. You see, everybody contributes. So I said, while it's okay to teach the children about their history and their culture, spin the globe, point a finger, and say, you know what, this month I'm going to study about the Swedes, the Irish, the Samoans, the Jamaicans, Haitians, we go all over the globe. He said, because once you get that foundation of just being a decent, good person and just judge that person, you know, as if, like say, like my mom said, you turn the lights out, we're all black. So you judge that person as if you were blind. And I think that it's okay as long as we're willing to learn other cultures and get to appreciate other people because we all bring something to the table, all of us, you know? Well, Ray, it's been so... Exciting and interesting talking to you. Mm-hmm. I wish you the best uh, with your book. And please keep us informed. Let us know what you're doing. Send us some links so we can share it with our followers on uh, social media. So, so thank you. Again. Okay. Well, thank you so much. And I uh, hope you enjoy the book. And if you do, tell people about it. And, and um, you know, I think it's, uh, you'll find it quite interesting. And honestly, it was primarily written for uh, so many different demographics. But more black women connect with it than anyone. No, you know, I've said goodbye, but another question has just come to mind that I'd like to have the answer to, um, if possible. You just mentioned black women have seemed to be more responsive. 
What has been the response from white people? Well, the few I've talked to, they, they, they look at more of the, the sadness of it rather than the strength of the woman. It's, it's almost like, oh, wow, that was tough. They focus more on the being an orphan, being abandoned by my biological parents. Black women, it's like, okay, but that's a strong black woman right there. And there's a sense of pride, I think, because she's a black woman and black women know and have felt, especially in this country, it's very difficult to make strides sometimes, depending on circumstances. So, so that's been the difference. But yeah, I mean, they really, really liked it. So I'm glad. Great. Well, it's been a pleasure talking to you. It really has. Yeah. All right, Delia. Well, thank you so much. And uh, yeah, oh, I, mean, I can go for stories all day. It was so fun. I can tell. <laughs> Now let's dive back into this week's proverb, eagles fly alone, but sheep flock together. It can be interpreted in many different ways, from animals to strength in numbers. One way that I believe this metaphor can be interpreted is to look at the company we keep. Lockdown has been hard on everyone. There's no questioning that. We've been isolated, bored and downright depressed. But the end is slowly nearing and I believe that this proverb is the perfect example of strength and a great reflection on the company we keep. Take your friends for example. You know that they will always be there for you and be supportive of every decision you make. But at the same time, they won't shy away from pointing out if you're making questionable decisions. Flocking together in this day and age is something everyone is wanting to do, to hold loved ones in their arms, to reminisce with friends about old memories, or to even simply play a game of contact sports. Looking more into this proverb, we can see that although eagles may fly alone with their sheer power and grace, the idea of flocking together shows strength and power of numbers. Take ants, for example. One ant is merely a small, puny insect that seems like nothing. However, ants are actually one of the strongest insects on this planet, with most ants capable of lifting 20 times their own body weight. I've been taught that from the time I was a child. My gosh, I've just remembered. Well, that's like me lifting up a lorry with my hands. Now, if you combine one ant with hundreds of other ants, well, you get a force to be reckoned with, as nothing can stop these incredibly driven insects, not even the water. The ants react by linking arms together, forming a mesh of interconnected bodies. Between them, they're making a life raft. Now, in a certain way, humans are like ants. I know this sounds somewhat silly, but think about it. When we're on our own, we are still strong, but tend to question ourselves and doubt can start to creep in. However, when we are joined by friends and family and flock together, we start to feel uplifted, stronger and all around healthier. This is a key example of positive reinforcement of others. Bonding with others is something that gets driven into us at an exceptionally young age. When we're babies, we form attachments incredibly quickly to our parents. Then as we get older, we form further attachments with our friends. This was looked into by Schaefer and Emerson in 1964. They conducted an observation and studied 60 babies to assess how babies form attachments and who they primarily attach themselves to. The first stage, usually lasting up to six weeks after birth, they termed the asocial stage. Newborn babies will typically form attachments with anything that breathes. Newborns don't tend to discriminate between humans 
and don't yet show a preference for their parents, but already show a preference for humans over non-human stimuli such as dolls. In the period between six weeks and six months, babies become more sociable as they develop through the indiscriminate stage. A three-month-old can tell people apart and so starts to form stronger attachments with familiar adults. But babies currently in the indiscriminate stage don't show a fear of strangers. Until they enter the phase of specific attachment, which tends to develop at the age of seven months. The key behavior identifying the specific attachment phase is separation anxiety, such as crying when their primary attachment figure leaves them. Babies also begin to demonstrate a fear of strangers in this stage. After a few months of favoring one specific attachment, babies start to develop an interest in building further attachments. This multiple attachment phase kicks in from around 10-11 months old and is marked by a significantly increased interest being shown towards friends, grandparents and other familiar adults. This idea that we adapt and form connections to our parents at such a young age shows that even in the younger state, we flock together. As we grow up, our emotions and characteristics tend to change. This is mainly due to the people we surround ourselves with. When in preschool, young children tend to adapt and change their mannerism to reflect and mirror those around them. This idea that the young children are almost a form of putty that gets moulded into shape by those around them is clear to see. When reflecting on this proverb, it may sound like it's better to be within a group and to be amongst people, but sometimes it is best to go alone. If you want to be successful, you need to be comfortable being alone. Being around supportive people will always be helpful, but spending time alone and relying on your own motivation and your own self-discipline is a tried and tested way of achieving success. Practicing mindfulness is a great way to be comfortable in your own journey and train your brain to ignore distractions. Blaise Pascal, the French mathematician, said something I've never forgotten. He said most of man's miseries derive by his inability to sit quietly in a room by himself. Tranquility is the new luxury. I'm going to repeat that again because it's so important. Tranquility is the new luxury. Most people in the world right now are so addicted to distraction. There's so much going on, they're exhausted. And so one of the single best moves you can do to get your best thinking done, to get your best insights, to be more intentional as you go through your days, to amplify your productivity, creativity, and prosperity is this. Make more time to be alone. Now, at some point in history, a bird's flocking behavior started to be applied metaphorically to people who acted in a similar way. And now, today, we have this saying, let's move slightly away from children and young minds and focus on one of the main points of this proverb, a flock. The saying, two birds of a feather flock together, is based on a factual event when you see birds flying around in a flock. They will normally be with the same species, like pigeons with pigeons, ravens with ravens, and swans with swans. 
all flocks will muster together and will really vary in all different shapes and size. Birds like Canadian goose will tend to travel in flocks of up to 20, but others like the red-billed culia or starlings can form flocks of thousands. When a murmuration turns in unison, it's similar to what's known as a critical transition. So there, it's all cleared up, right? Okay, for those of you who aren't physicists, a critical transition can be thought of as an abrupt change that occurs when an external force pushes something to its tipping point. Think of it like this. The giant group movements of a murmuration aren't happening because of any communication between the birds. They're a physical reaction. When an external factor, like an incoming predator, causes one bird to move in a certain direction, that bird bumps into the others around him, causing a massive change of course. It's like when an earthquake triggers the same kind of reaction in the snowflakes of an avalanche. Here's a fun fact for you that you may not know. When birds flock together, they will use less energy to fly. For example, you would have seen the normal V formation. Each bird will fly in the wake of the bird in front. This makes for less wind resistance for the birds to the back. Hence why the strongest and alpha bird will remain at the front. You may think this is unfair to the bird at the front, but don't worry. Each bird will take turns going to the front. That ensures that no bird gets too tired. This idea of birds sharing the weight of others is something that we can put forward into our own life. If you're pushing hard and striving to succeed, always know that there will be someone in your flock who will catch you when you fall and let you rest as they power through. So what should you take away from this week's episode? Whether you're a sheep, eagle, or a bit of both, take time to yourself and be mindful of the company you keep. Always be grateful for those who love you, but make sure you love yourself too. And remember that no matter what you do, there will always be someone behind you to support you. This is your life and you need to make the important decisions to decide where it leads. I hope you've enjoyed the latest episode of Metaphorically Speaking. Thank you to our guest, Ray Studevant, for sharing his inspiring story. I would absolutely recommend his book, Black Sheep. You can find it online. I'd also like to thank our top of the segment writer, Sean McCallendon, our producer, Sam Colwood, who stepped in at a moment's notice to ensure that we had fact-checked and that we had a wonderful second segment that he's responsible for and ensuring that everything came right, especially he was out for the last couple of weeks on a film shoot. So thank you so much for that, Sam. And also, I want to thank you for listening, for following us. And don't forget, if you'd like to suggest a metaphor for an upcoming show, you can reach us at msdelia at deliadelaw.com. We'd love you to share the show with your family and friends. We'd also like you to leave a review on colorful.com or on our podcast, Metaphorically Speaking, which is on Apple, Spotify, and all major streaming platforms. We depend on you to help us grow so we can produce the best content for you to enjoy. And I really hope that you are enjoying the show because we really do learn. We learn so much about metaphors that we use all the time and don't know where they come from. So please leave a comment. It really does help. Join us for another metaphor next week. I'm going to leave you with something I've been telling everyone because I want us all to be safe and to feel safer as we go along for the rest of the year. So here's my saying, be fab, 
and get the jab. You know what I'm talking about. Till next week, I'm Delia Delore. Goodbye. <laughs>